1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing
1: world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. Here are two cookbook authors, Rose Levy-Barenbaum on baking and Kathy Airway on the food of Taiwan.
0: Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Rose Levy-Barenbaum in the office with us. Her new book is The Baking Bible. Hello, Rose. So glad you could join us.
1: Hi, Mark and Rose. Hi, Rose. It's <laughs> so
2: great to have you, you have here. have a lot of roses. I
1: never have another rose to talk to. Is this is so perfect. It, it's, it's a real treat for me, too. <laughs> yes. So um, you've, you've written a whole bunch of, of Bibles, as mm. it were, uh, about every possible type of baked goods about cakes and uh, breads and every other thing. And now you have the baking Bible. Is this the one Bible to rule them all?
2: (laughs) Well, it doesn't replace the other ones because the other ones have single subjects. So I go more into depth of explaining how ingredients work and things like that. Mm -hmm. But this one is the one since I did each subject that I revisited after five years between books, new things came about, and in addition to that, I tweaked old things, so it's a combination, but it includes every subject, I think, of baking, even candy making, and preserving to a point.
1: So how much overlap Mm -hmm. is there, um, recipe-wise, particularly, like, if if people already have all the rest of your books, as I'm sure many do, Mm -hmm. um, does this add on top of that, or is it all that? No, it's pretty
2: much pretty much new stuff. I would mm-hmm. say maybe 90%. Wow. Uh, for example, wow. one thing that was a bit of an overlap was my favorite pie crust. I had about 20 pie crusts in the Pie and Pastry Bible, but what one I always return to is the cream cheese flaky pie crust. But since the Pastry Bible, I discovered that heavy cream makes a better crust and a few little tweaks about how to roll and things like that. So now I would go to this recipe instead of the Pastry Bible. I see. Oh, wow, right. But then there's a lot of totally new things, like on the cover the pastry that's called the Queen Amon. Mm-hmm. I think of it as the Queen of Pastry, because if you look at the spelling, K-O-U-I-G-N, you'd never pronounce it that way. I only learned how to pronounce it about a month ago, and the book went to press about six months ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is, uh, this is now the Queen of Baking Books, then? <laughs> Well, it's the queen of pastry. I call it the, this
2: is the the queen of man versus the cronut. You know, people outside of New York have never even heard of a cronut, but
0: they're both the hot new pastries. So what are some of the surprise recipes you, you found in there? I mean, you've, it seems like you've baked everything, but mm. how do you come up with something new? And what were some of the ones that you've came across and you said, this is, this is th- something I have to put in the book?
2: Well, that's a difficult question, Mark, because... You know, sometimes I don't even remember. I have so many recipes in uh-huh. my repertoire, and that's why I'm so glad that this site called Eat Your Cakes decided to index not only every recipe in every book, but every recipe I've ever published in magazines and newspapers. Because who can... Wow. I mean, this is my 10th book, you know, mm-hmm. so you can imagine. Right. But off the top of my head, the first thing that pops into it is, well, two things. One is the red velvet rose, and people think I sculpted it. It's on the back of the book. Um, it's because... It uses the Nordicware pan that's shaped like a fluted tube pan that's shaped like a rose. So when people say, oh, my God, I could never do that, I said, just buy the pan. It does it for you. (laughs) And then there is the Golden Fleming Mm -hmm. that was dedicated to Renee Fleming. And I'm Mm -hmm. a great opera lover. Mm -hmm. If I could have had a choice in life, I probably would have been an opera singer. (laughs) But instead, I'm a cake baker. So I dedicated two of my cakes to opera singers. And the Renee Fleming cake is a, a lemon chiffon That doesn't have a center tube, so it was a great challenge to Mm -hmm. be able to make a cake that would be a solid cake. Mm -hmm. And I say that it's like a bird ready to take flight, like her voice. And I'm so glad that just coincidentally this year she sang for the Super Bowl. She sang the national anthem. So now people, not everybody loves opera. And she also sings popular songs. But now that really put her on the map and it will make sense to people why that cake was dedicated to her
1: yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense yeah. so um, how how many of the uh tips and tricks in here are, it sounds like they're very equipment-based in some ways. You were talking about different techniques for rolling and this particular pan. Uh, does, does someone have to have an enormous, well-equipped mm. kitchen to follow along?
2: That's a good question. I, I used to teach. I had a cooking school and one of my students from Japan said, I have to question my commitment to baking if I have to have all this arsenal of equipment because in Japan everybody has a tiny kitchens. Very small kitchen, And they're lucky right. that they, if they even have an oven. So uh, I realized that it's fun to have to be equipment centric mm-hmm. i mean i find equipment delightful and i have this new thing that's called a crack egg thing that where it's, it's only seven dollars and it doesn't take up much room but you can crack an egg so easily without ever breaking the yolk and no mess it's something that i found on google and i wrote to the guy and i said if this is as good as i think it will be i'll help you do the kickstart to fund it because i didn't want it to disappear but and to answer your question more directly you can do with very little equipment in fact a lot of people don't even have rolling pins. They use wine bottles. Hmm. Really? I would rather have a rolling pin personally. Yeah, right, but, right. you know, you don't. It's a luxury to have the specialty equipment. Mm-hmm. And if people are collectors, they'll want to have it. But most of the things in this book, I would say, except for a specialty pan, can be baked And an alternative. And I always give alternatives because I don't want people to feel they have to go out and buy something special. They could use any tube pan of 10-cup capacity. Mm -hmm.
0: And and what is one instrument that you just can't live without?
2: Well, right now it's the Kraken, but (laughs) But let me see. I think um, to be more practical, would it be a thermometer? No, not a thermometer. Um, Oh, of course, my scale. Okay, yeah. Well, thermometer is a luxury. And I don't think it's that much of a luxury that you shouldn't get one because baking is all about cooling and heating and temperature control, and it will make a huge difference. But if you just had one piece of equipment, it would be a scale. I so prefer weighing to measuring. In fact, I have a new mantra because people are always saying, "Well, measuring is so much easier. It's faster. It's more fun. You don't have to worry." I don't know why people are afraid of scales, but my combat recently. My, I I said combat, and it really is kind of fighting words. I mean. What I say to defend weighing is that measuring is fine for people who content themselves with half measures. Oh, it's, I know it's kind of mean, but the thing is, I want to encourage people to understand that weighing isn't for a scientific lab weighing in Europe. They all bake by scale mm-hmm. because it's more accurate. It's faster and mm-hmm. it's easier. So why not? You know, and the digital scales these days go so easily between grams and ounces. Mm-hmm. That's why I give
1: all the volume and I give the grams. I and was ounces just going to say, you
0: have both of you have both of the measurements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've I've been doing all of my baking with a scale for a couple of years now. It makes such a difference. Oh, I'm, glad and, it, I'm and, preaching to the converted. And, well, yeah, but it it is. It, I think of cooking as art and baking as science, and obviously there's overlap between them. Um, but baking requires such precision. At times well it 's not so
2: much it requires it, but if you want to have the ultimate results, and why wouldn 't you want to i mean you 're spending money on hopefully the best ingredients and you 're doing you 're spending your time and you 're giving it to people you hopefully love but I have to say that when people ask me what is the best thing to teach children in baking, baking period is the ideal cl- lesson because they get everything rolled into one. They get science and math and patience and creativity. One little boy said to me, if I count faster, will that, be, will that work so that you don't have to wait a minute and a half while you mix? So he was understanding a whole new concept. And this was a very bright child. Often I think, gee, can I speed up the counting? But no, you, know, you have to submit to certain rules and understand these things.
1: And anyone who says mm-hmm. girls can't do math has never seen a woman baking a cake. I have to say that math is my weakness, which is why
2: I don't have a single error in my books. I know I can't take for granted that I don't need a calculator Mm. and I make sure to a million times proof everything in the book, you know, every single weight and volume and temperature so easy, especially in the old days of publishing when people typed and got paid by the page. See, I thought this would be wonderful. This is my first book I've done totally electronically, including the editing, but although it's wonderful as far as not having the transmission, be inaccurate. The hard part is when you see the queries, which are the questions from the editor. Mm-hmm. They always have a lot of them because most of them aren't bakers, so that you, they ask maybe what the average person would ask mm-hmm. to have further clarity. Mm-hmm. So here you have this sidebar with all their queries and a million lines going from the text to the sidebar, which you have to follow. So it's not easy, but it's more accurate.
0: So you said every, this is the first time you've worked electronic and everything, meaning you haven't, you didn't see. Pages that didn 't send manuscript back would it
2: oh yeah,, okay. but what I mean is the editing was done electronically ah,
0: okay so you and it, I, story, it used yeah. to be
2: that I had to see it in the hard copy to be able to read now I can right. edit from a computer right. effortlessly, but I have to say that when the pages came, the laid out pages. That's when the fetus becomes an embryo, or is it vice versa? embryo becomes <laughs> an <laughs> The other way fetus. around. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Right. Because before that, the book isn't all in parts and pieces. And suddenly you see the pages, and, and you realize yeah. what you have there. Yeah. You see what the pictures are going to look like and the font. And, and suddenly the, the mistakes of the right. inconsistencies jump out at you.
0: So talk to us mm-hmm. about
2: ovens. Oh, that's probably the most important thing of all. (laughs) Right. Because I always say the oven is the common denominator of failure in baking. Uh. And that's because if people don't have their oven calibrated, or if they bake too fast or too slow, it's not like you can put a cake in the oven and it says 40 to 50 minutes, and your oven is baking slow. So you think, okay, I'll just bake it 60 minutes. But what happens is that the cake doesn't have the, the right structure developed, so it's likely to fall. Or if it bakes too fast, it will be domed. So... I don't think oven thermometers generally are that accurate. I finally found ones that I can recommend in the book. But if you don't want to get a thermometer, what's even more accurate is to see if a recipe of mine says 30 to 40 minutes and it's taking longer, you know that you have to turn up your oven a bit. Mm. If your oven is really out of whack, then call somebody and somebody have it calibrated. Right. And by the way, if you have convection and you can't turn it off, 25 degrees lower is the rule of thumb. I'm not talking about countertop convection ovens. Right. Because right. often you don't have to change that at all. Right. I mean, you get all these new ovens and there's so many bells and whistles. People don't even know they're supposed to turn it down for convection. Mm-hmm. And they wonder what's going wrong. Right. I get right. a million questions on the blog about that type of thing. Hmm.
0: And who do you call to calibrate your, uh, your oven?
2: You know, I've actually learned how to do it myself.
0: Really? Because what, tell us.
2: Well, I can't. It's, it's like flying a plane. It's like, okay. it's like getting somebody to land a plane when right. they've never flown. Because each oven is different. I can do it on my oven. I can have mm. the pilot light. Most people don't even have pilot lights in the yeah, oven we anymore. Have okay, well, I like to have my pilot light no higher than 120 because that means that I can stick chocolate in there and I never have to chop chocolate. Mm. I just let it melt. That's only dark chocolate. White mm. chocolate needs to be stirred, and so does milk. But calibrating ovens? I, when I moved to New Jersey from New York, I brought my wolf oven, which is uh. a commercial type of oven, and I had it converted to propane. And that usually takes two tries, but that was great. I brought, I called in somebody and did it. The only thing is that he didn't make it level. Now, make sure your oven is level because yes. I didn't notice it for the first six months because the front of the oven was fine, but then I was making a wedding cake for somebody. The back of the oven was sloped down, and my two 12-inch cakes, the first one was sort of salvageable, but the second layer that was in the back was so unlevel that I couldn't even level it. I would have had a half-inch high cake. And you know, usually when you make a wedding cake, you're working right to the last minute Mm -hmm. because you want it to be as fresh as possible. So I was extremely upset, (laughs) but I asked my associate, Woody, you know, what should we do? Because I knew that when something goes wrong, often it... It multiplies. You know, it's right. like the domino effect. While you're wringing your hands, you mess up the next thing, like the buttercream. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't get upset about it. I'll level it later. For now, just go on, move on. And we that was probably the most beautiful cake I've ever made. So... Then I went and did the next thing, and it was perfectly level. What he did is we had to rebake the level, the, one of the layers, so he put a metal bar just to raise the back of the panel uh-huh. a bit. I mean, there's okay. so many solutions that you can do, but you don't want to have to live that way.
1: Right, <laughs> absolutely. So we were going to ask what your home kitchen is like, but it, it sounds like it is extremely well-equipped.
2: Well, you know, for many years I worked in my living room. I turned the entire living room into a kitchen because I had a typical New York tiny microscopic kitchen and my dream I was always thinking what I'd want if I had a fully equipped kitchen one thing I didn't have was a professional vacuum sealer you know because I'm always storing nuts and different things that I get in huge quantity. So if I'd gotten it years ago, it would have been in the middle of the living room and my husband wouldn't have been too pleased about it. (laughs) So that's one of the big features of the new kitchen. But what I did when I moved is I turned the entire basement into a baker's kitchen. So on my first floor, on the main floor is the regular kitchen and downstairs is the baker's kitchen, no windows. So I don't get distracted, but also you can control temperature better. Oh, when you don't have wow. windows you know so i have an air conditioner in my kitchen i mean this is a dream because that's the one place you desperately need it mm-hmm. and, and especially when you, in the summer and,
0: right exactly And when you moved out to new jersey this is something you knew you wanted to do
2: I knew I had to do it also. I mean, I had so much equipment because people are always sending me equipment to test. And since I'm such an equipment junkie, I can never give it up. So
0: so does the uh, basement look like a commercial kitchen? Semi. Semi. I'm going to be
2: posting it on my blog, actually. This Saturday is going to be a posting so you'll be able to see all the pictures. And it's really fun working in it because all the pictures for this book were taken initially to give to the stylist. And then Woody, my assistant, and I, we conspired to bake all of the cookie chapter, part of the cake chapter, and also part of the bread chapter. So as much as we could do ahead, we brought. Because when we ended up at the location, which was in upstate New York, in last November, we found two of the most expensive ovens, which I have one of, upstairs, the Gagano, And both of them were bolted to the wall, not level. Yeah. So you couldn't shim it. You you couldn't do anything. Right. So, you you know, the minute I leave even my living room kitchen that I had, I know I'm going to encounter things that are going to be a challenge. I can do it, but most people don't know how to adjust when they have things that don't work the way they should.
0: Right, sure. Mm
2: -hmm. We're going to take a quick
1: break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere. Love Publishers Weekly Radio. Now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW Editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Rose Levy Barenbaum, author of The Baking Bible, who was just telling us about the importance of being able to improvise in an unfamiliar place or or maybe even with an unfamiliar recipe. Um, and I had mentioned earlier, I think of baking as so specific and scientific. How do you improvise within those kinds of constraints?
2: How do you mean by improvise?
1: Um, I'm, You know, you were talking about working with uh, a different... Uh, different equipment, a new oven. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. if you're in somebody else's kitchen, when I moved into my last apartment, we didn't have a stove or an oven for a week and a half. And so I did all of my baking uh, in a rice cooker <laughs> I, I, I learned uh, how. To, and eventually we got a toaster oven Which would have been another I see what uh, you mean by uh, improvise an, yeah. Another option mm-hmm. But also just you know You're halfway through a recipe You didn't mise en place And suddenly you realize You know you're out of something uh, You only have whole wheat flour Instead of the white flour <laughs> You know how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you work around that While still sort of keeping The core truth of a recipe When I lived in New York I could
2: just run out and get something Well
1: there is always that now, In
2: fact one time I forgot to preheat the oven for a biscuit, which is a delicate cake that doesn't have a lot of leeway. And, and rather than throw out the batter, because it takes at least 20 minutes to preheat an oven, I put it in and turned the oven on. And it the heat, it was the best biscuit I ever made. That was a very nice surprise. <laughs> but where I was saying that the ovens were not leveled, the Gagano ones that we work with, I had to sit in front of it and turn it constantly to make sure not everything can be done that way because some things will fall, right. but I had my eye on it. I was watching it the whole time. And if something isn't level, as I said, you can put a little bar under the pan to make mm-hmm. it work. Um, you just sort of fly by the seat of your pants when you're in situations. I was invited to visit one of my former students in Japan, in Kyoto, and there they don't have ovens at all. It's an artisanal city and it's exquisite, but... It's not a baking culture, or at least it hasn't been. Right. and yeah, she The had, same thing she with my
0: relatives in uh, southern Italy. M- yeah, they have uh, stovetops, not really ovens.
2: Huh. I didn't know that because yeah. they're big bread bakers. In fact, a friend of mine from Sicily, she actually... Used to go to a community oven to bring her dough. Mm-hmm. This is what people did. Right. And that's where they made the marks on the dough that had different shapes because right. it was kind of like the Irish fishermen knit so they could identify the body. You know. But right. in this case, <laughs> they can identify <laughs> the bread. <laughs> you know, people didn't have ovens. Right. So uh, having an oven. In Japan, or having a toaster oven, the problem was that it was burning on the bottom, mm-hmm. and if she raised it up one level, it burned at the top. So I said, when I come, I'll teach you how to bake in a toaster oven, because I knew right away what we had to do. From having gone on the QE2, mm-hmm. having to do a demo, and they only had deck ovens, which means things baked not on a rack, but right on the oven, and everything was burning Double pan to the rescue. Mm-hmm. You know, put one pan in the other, leave right. it at the bottom. That protects it. Kind of like a cushioning effect. Because oh, it wow. captures catch, captures air in between. Right. And then it doesn't brown on the top. Say your pie is browning too quickly on the top. Either well, either you put a piece of foil on or you lower it. And I even like baking on the floor of the oven for pies to get a crisp bottom crust. Hmm. but then I like to use the first time if I'm using an oven I'm not familiar with, a glass Pyrex pie plate. Mm-hmm. So then you can see when it browns, you just lift it up the next level. You can move pies around. You can't move cakes around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cakes can be turned around after three quarters of the baking time. And there's so many wow. tips like that that I've put in this book. You know, for cookies, for example, people don't think it's necessary to make each cookie the same size. But guess what happens when you don't? The bigger ones take longer to cook. So you have a compromise of either underbaked cookies or overbaked cookies, unless you start taking out the smaller ones before the bigger ones are done. Yeah, so this is, there's a reason for all these things. And, of course, if you don't follow it, you'll still get good things. But you'll get better things if you understand what you're doing.
0: So, what would you say to someone who um, might be intimidated to to bake? Someone who, like myself, does a lot of cooking, but doesn't do a lot of baking? Because I think it's going to be kind of time-consuming. I have to get the ingredients exactly right, and whatever I'm going to bake just isn't going to turn out all that great or as mm. gloriously as as it might.
2: So, Mark, isn't it lucky you have this book now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so,
0: which recipe from here?
2: <laughs> well, I have to say that some of the recipes have several components, but generally the components are wonderful on their own. Mm. You know, and plus they're mix and match. For right. example, there's a cream cheese cake that I absolutely adore. You can see in the picture how even it is. And I've loved cream cheese and pie crust. I think it makes the best flavor in a pie crust. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what would it do in a cake? And it's really amazingly good. And the topping is a lemon curd, but a very mm. special one for which you need a blender or an immersion blender. But it's wonderful without that lemon curd. Mm. Or even if you get lemon curd in a jar and spread it on. Right. Lemon curd that's manufactured like tip tree is made from lemons from Morocco in small batches. Right. It's better than most people's lemon curd they make at home i'm not against products if they're as good or better and then of course the cookies there are a lot of really easy cookies to do right and one of my favorite things that's really easy and you'll love is the wicked good ganache it's so good i gave it that special name because tell us about it well it's It's actually combined with the chocolate Pavarotti. That was what I dedicated to Pavarotti, right? Nice. And it's a chocolate cake in which I put white chocolate because it's such a wonderful emulsifier that you get this moist, great texture. Mm. In fact, I should call it the black velvet because I have a white velvet, I have a red velvet, (laughs) and this is kind of the black velvet. The Pavarotti appealed to me more. (laughs) Sure. And then the... the, Ganache, right. has a bit of cayenne pepper in. I give a range, because not everybody wants a big hit. Right. But when I made this for my 50th high school reunion, I went to music and art high school, and we went back to the the school on the hill where it was between City College, right. and I heard all the students, all my colleagues who, you know, were now <laughs> into their own professions, and everybody was saying, it sings in the mouth. And I thought, ah, oh, my, oh, my friends, they got it. You know, even the art students. <laughs> Because, of course, everybody who was in art had to take music, and everybody who was in music took an art course. It was mm-hmm. the most wonderful school. So I actually didn't make the Pavarotti. I made the Domingo, dedicated to Placido Domingo. Of course. And, but I used the Wicked Good Ganache and thought that would be perfect for it.
0: If, if you were to do a cake uh, uh, on, inspired by Enrico Caruso... <laughs> what might that be? <laughs> <laughs> Give
2: me time, and the next book may have Great, it. Great,
0: excellent. <laughs> well, tell me, what
2: about Enrico Caruso? Do you think stands out the most?
0: Um, I think the 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 high range of his voice, especially on the Edison. Uh, I'm, I'm not the Edison, but on the Victor Victrola record, those those mm. those records as they're recorded, um, it's at once hearty though high, almost like a high lonesome in ways. Mm. Um, and there's something about that voice that I really like, especially, I mean, through those recordings.
2: I never heard Enrico Caruso sing. I think on recording, yes. But coincidentally, I made a little mistake in this book. The, I talked about Pavarotti and how he had the most unreal voice where he could reach the E above high C. Mm-hmm. It's the most eerie sound I've ever heard coming out of a human being. And somebody wrote to me, because I put that on the blog, and they said it's the F above high C. And so I told my editor we have to change it in the next printing. She said, really? Is that really necessary? Yes. And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot shortchange my whole musical note. Right, <laughs> Absolutely. And,
1: yeah. and really the difference between, speaking as someone who's... who's taken some singing lessons the oh, difference really? between e above high c and f above high c is is worth noting thank you gives a whole note it, right? it really it yeah it's a lot of people cannot make even that little extra uh push mm-hmm. to get up to the yeah. higher note so yeah i would say that that's in fact worth. there's a very funny
2: story about how when he was singing there was this is i think il parate i'm not sure now but anyway he was singing with joan sutherland and afterwards his father said Luciano, you have so much talent. Why did you let Joan, uh, not wasn't really Fleming, Joan Sutherland, sing that note for you? because <laughs> he couldn't believe even of his own son, and he too is a tenor. Mm-hmm. The Domingo I called it the tenor of chocolate cakes. The Fleming is the soprano of golden cakes, right. Right.
1: but the Pavarotti is the Pavarotti. <laughs> Meanwhile, as great. an alto, I, I, I hold to myself a hope that someday there will be an alto cake for me to be. Oh, Rose. <laughs>
0: I'll
2: be
1: thinking about the Crusoe and the alto
0: for, to continue this thing. Oh, we can even do Maria Callas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. Um, You'll be touring to promote the book. How does that work? I've been to a lot of readings, but I've never been to a reading given by a cookbook author. I, do mm. you read the recipes? Do you talk about the recipes?
2: One of my favorite things, because really I was a writer before I was a baker. I mean, I was born as a writer. People have often said to me, I want to write. And I said, well, then why don't you? You know, a writer cannot help but to write. I wrote mm-hmm. letters, I wrote a diary, and the more you write, the better that you get. Right. So I love writing the head notes, the stories behind the stories, the dedication, or at the cre- to give credit to whom the recipe came from. Mm-hmm. And the only time I ever actually read from the book was in Berkeley. And I forget exactly why, but they said that I could. And since I have a lot of stories, that was one in particular. It was a bit outrageous, and they said I could let it fly in Berkeley, even though there were children. (laughs) I'm not going to do it now. (laughs) Luckily, I can't remember. But generally, the way a book tour works, I just came from Wellesley, actually. I never could have gotten into Wellesley in college had I applied from high school, but I got in with this book. (laughs) Um, Two other authors, not cookbook authors, one who's a famous essayist and the other who wrote a book that it was a story that took place in Minnesota. They were both marvelous speakers. And so I was so happy, even though it meant speeding back for the book launch, which was very you know, the same day that we spoke. But um, I got to tell the story of the book production. And I actually have 14 phases of book production that's posted on my blog, mm-hmm. and it took three days to condense it down to a 20-minute talk, and I had a speed to go through it, because it's so fascinating. I forget with each book, and each book it changes with technology, but I thought I'd want to share this with people who think writing a cookbook is so easy. They have no idea, mm. and I discovered myself that the first seven parts of production was not were not with the publisher. They were with... Woody and Me, uh-huh. and used to be with just me when I was working alone. And then the exactly the, the seven later parts, where once you give it to the publisher and other people start getting involved... Which can be very painful because you suddenly realize that you've written two times the size of the book, you know, that cuts are going to have to be mm-hmm. made. And actually, what happened in this case was that I had to cut the entire wedding cake chapter, but I did it in exchange for having everything else in to make it a complete book. Right. I decided that in order to be the baking Bible, it didn't have to have a wedding cake chapter. And they're also dying for me to do a wedding cake book, mm-hmm. which I didn't want to do because I don't like big things. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that it didn't have to have millions of wedding cakes, just the ones that really work. And what I mean by work is that a wedding cake has to be delicious, but it also has to be beautiful, which means that you need at least three days to work on it. And so Uh, that limits what kind of cake you want to put in that will stay fresh for that. And we've come up with so far five, but then there are a lot of things, occasions surrounding a wedding, such as the groom's cake, the bachelor party, the wedding shower, and some of the things that had to be cut are going to be in that, too. But to my delight, when we went into the laid-out pages, that's when the designer discovered that she could put, I could put more things back in without looking oh, cluttered. Wow. Right. And I think this is, she did the design of, of Rose's Heavenly Cakes that was the book preceding this. And I think it's, this is much better, even, because mm-hmm. even though there's tons of information, it doesn't look in the way. It looks very clear.
1: So, we just have a, a few more minutes. I was wondering if you would talk about some of the the challenges that you 've faced as a as a baker as an author um, some something big that you 've really had to work to overcome it 's not so much overcoming
2: it 's the proofing mm-hmm. you know the um, The proofing is endless, and I think of it as a metaphor for life because you tend to see things as they ought to be. your brain fills in what 's missing or what 's wrong you know so no matter how many people looked at this, and there a lot of people did, and Woody and I actually read, I read it aloud while he was in Minnesota looking at the manuscript. Mm-hmm. He didn't move to New, to, to New Jersey, Pennsylvania area, until closer to the book production. Mm. But it gave me the opportunity to hear how the words sound, because I think the ideal kind of writing for instructional writing, which is the biggest challenge, is to have a combination of the audio, audio, And the reading. Mm -hmm. It's it's different. And you don't want either one or the other. So to make sure that that worked and also to make sure that there was consistency. Mm -hmm. And I like to have a kind of transparency in a a written recipe because people are intimidated by baking, even though they don't need to be. So in my opinion, if you write correctly and all the information. So the, thing, the way to make it transparent is to make sure that you have, for example, macros, so that when you say something one way in one page for a recipe, you say it the same way 100 pages later. Unconsciously, people see when things are different, and they start getting jumbled. Mm-hmm. You know, so we made many macros, but then in this particular book, there were four different subjects, you know, there are pies, there's bread, there's cookies, it's right. different language too. And then the worst thing were the numbers, having volume ounces and grams means that you That's have to proof everything, right? Because it's different if you're making a lamb chop and you mess up and you over bake, overcook it, it's still edible. But if you mess up a, a baked good and the texture's off it ruins the flavor as well. Right. So there were a lot of cha- challenges. But I think that in the end I was so I was ready to give it in I think 6 months before it was due which is unheard of in book publishing and the sure. editor and the publisher said don't think we're going to speed it up by moving it ahead one year. And I said, no. I just want to give you a lot of time. This is a very complicated book with lots of pictures. I want lots of production time. And guess what? They moved. They were so thrilled with it. They moved it up a year. <laughs> <laughs> and and then, they still did a great job. And, and then you were on deadline. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah, exactly. But the, the best thing is that if there was a correction to make, even though it was late in the game and it cost more money, they never hesitated. Everybody kind of fell in love with this book. Even the edi- other editors in the house. They were wow. just so excited. Every time I go to an event and see somebody, they'd say, we're all so excited. And I said, really? You know, I was not expecting to have that kind of enthusiasm.
1: And you've been mentioning your blog. Do you want to tell us where to find it so that people can hunt down all those photos and anecdotes? Oh,
2: thank you for asking, Rose. Because, you know, actually, if people put in either of my names, they would find it. But nobody can ever spell my name. (laughs) So it's realbakingwithrose.com.
1: That sounds very easy to spell and easy to remember. Well, right. Rose, thank you so much. What a pleasure it is to have you here. Thank you, Rose and Thank Mark. you so much. I've loved it, too. We've been talking with Rose Levy-Barenbaum. You can find her book, The Baking Bible, in stores right now.
3: I'm Joanna Schaffhausen. I'm the author of The Vanishing Season, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Kathy Irway on the line. Her new book is The Food of Taiwan. Hi, Kathy. So glad you could join us.
3: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: So this is your second book, following the memoir, The Art of Eating In. So why pick Taiwan for a cookbook?
3: Well, I've always been fascinated by Taiwanese cuisine. Um, it's where, Taiwan is where my mother was born and raised, and much of the food that I ate growing up was owing to her homeland. Um, I never, I never really thought of it as a distinct cuisine outside of, um, Chinese cuisine, which is such a vast, you know, cuisine, and there's so many regional, um, specialties. But um, it just the reason for that was just that it doesn't seem to exist as, um, you know, in literature. Um, there wasn't really a category. Certainly, there weren't any cookbooks that I found in the English language um, or published in the U.S. that focused on Taiwanese food. And, you know, as I became, um, you know, interested in food writing and I started writing articles and books, it still seemed like a sort of barren um you know, and a great opportunity um, to kind of study more. So what kind of research do you do
1: for a book like this? Um, did you travel to Taiwan? Did you consult with cooks who were
3: there? Yeah, I did. So, um, you know, I've been to Taiwan a couple of times. I actually also spent a semester abroad in Taipei in uh, college. And that really opened my eyes to the amazing foods there and gave me a great primer for a lot of the um, dishes that I wanted to explore deeper, but for this book, I took two extended trips throughout Taiwan, where I set, uh, where I traveled, you know, from, you know, the whole course of the island, and um, really tried to hone in on what would be the ultimate collection of recipes, um, and also taking photographs along the way, meeting chefs, but also just average people like moms and grandmas and talking to them about um, the distinct dishes that they were making so it was a lot of fun
1: for for an ignorant American like me I failed geography um, I'm just gonna state that up front so I know that Taiwan's an island but I don't have a sense of how big it is um, what, what kind of scale are we talking about
3: it's a pretty small island so just to help you out geographically um, Taiwan is situated just below the Japanese archipelago, and uh, it's also above the Philippines. But the size of Taiwan is pretty small. Um, There's about 22 million people, but the scope of Taiwan is about the size of Massachusetts, I hear, um, in physical size.
1: Wow. But it's situated there. It must just get this great cross-section of Mm -hmm. influences and cuisines.
3: It definitely has, yeah. I mean i love to geek out about this in the history section of the book but um, you get this interesting cross section not only because of the different uh, societies that have that have made it what it is today but also the the tro- the subtropical climate is really different from much of you know Japan much of China and um, yeah it's it's very it's lush you know it's very full of natural resources
0: So I I enjoy a cookbook that combines recipes with cultural history, as does yours. I mean, you do that well with the book. I mean, the first, I think, 40, 50 pages are a a history of Taiwan. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that history culturally, and then we'll go on to talk about the food in just a second.
3: Oh, sure. I mean, so much of the cultural history is what makes the food what it is today, so um, I'm glad that you appreciate that part of it. Um, but, you know, in a nutshell, Taiwan has um, aboriginal populations that have been there for centuries I and mean, thousands of years, actually. And, you know, from right across the Taiwan Strait in China, there's Fujian province. And so many of the earliest uh, settlers in Taiwan were from that region. It's a southern Taiwanese, it's a southern Chinese uh, region. Um, Throughout the years, you see groups like the Hakka, who were dispersed throughout China due to oppression, um, and were once thought to be a distinct ethnicity, um, but are now recognized as more or less Han Chinese people, but with their own language and customs. They have, over the centuries, um, continued to migrate to Taiwan. And then we have a turning point where Taiwan was ceded to the Japanese um, after they lost a war at the end of the 1800s. So you have 50 years where Japan occupied and ruled Taiwan. And so much of that influence is still there. Then another dramatic change of pace for this little island, um, we had the ROC, or Republic of China, retreating from the communists at the um, at the end of the 1940s. So that whole group of migration from Chiang Kai-shek's army, of the, the Republic of China, who settled in Taiwan, would make up a great amount of its population. Those people came from all over China, and that happened to include my grandparents, too.
1: Wow. So is there... Um... It, can there be such a thing as like a single recipe that characterizes Taiwan or is the, the cuisine just too diverse?
3: I think so, because I think that when people think of Taiwanese cuisine, they're really talking about the people who were in Taiwan before the end of the 1800s. So before the turn of the century, when Japan took over um, there, you know, this was already established um they had already established a culture um, as a group on the island. So when we think of old-fashioned Taiwanese food, we think of food that is from that period.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So give us some examples of of some older traditional Taiwanese food from that period and and maybe how it's changed now.
3: Sure. So we have um, one of the classic dishes – is a rustic uh, noodle soup called Danzai noodle soup, and it refers to um, a wooden pole that fishermen would carry around their backs or on the tops of their shoulders. Um, it's also a dish called slack-season noodle. So basically, fishermen, during the off-season for catching whatever their catch was, would sell noodles on the side. Um, and then this is a very simple noodle dish, but it, it, it encompasses a lot of... Um, what Taiwanese food uh, favorites are. So there's a minced uh, pork meat sauce that is sort of drizzled atop, atop the noodle soup. And um, it's absolutely delicious. So that would be a classic, that would be a classic dish.
0: Great. What and you know it sounds very similar to some uh, Italian dishes that the uh, Mariners would make, also with noodles, but with the catch that they brought in. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's it's great to hear that too. But uh, so tell us, uh, maybe give us a couple more examples of 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 recipes of foods mm-hmm. that have come about from the the various uh, uh, from from the various people of, of Taiwan.
3: Oh, right, of course, yes. Yeah. So you asked about how they've changed over the years. Um, so I think a great example of the changing not only fashions, but influences um, in Taiwan is its beef noodle soup. Um, to back up a little bit, Taiwan mostly grows rice, not wheat. Um, it is too warm for wheat growing, so most of the noodles are rice noodles. Um, and even like buns or dumpling type of dishes like the bao um, a very popular dumpling-like snack in Taiwan is actually made with like a glutinous rice flour starch-based uh, skin instead of wheat. So after the mainland um, mass arrival in the end of the 40s, um, we see a lot more wheat being used and wheat-based noodles and buns and more northern specialties like, you know, scallion pancakes, for instance, which was made with wheat. Um, But a really cool example is um, beef noodle soup that was made in Taiwan, and it was believed it was made um, in the military villages that were um, set up to house members of the military's families um, when they had just moved over to Taiwan. So in these villages, you had a mingling of all different uh, mainland Chinese cultures. So somebody next door to somebody might be from um, you know, Beijing, and somebody else is from Shanghai, somebody's from Sichuan, and so forth. So you really see that in the Taiwanese beef noodle soup. It has spicy, um, you know, Sichuan peppercorns and chili bean sauce, which is from Sichuan province. It uses wheat-based noodles from the north, and it's all cooked in a a heavy, very intense, intensely flavored beef stock. So. You don't even find this dish anywhere in China, certainly not Sichuan province, where it would have like the most conspicuous uh, hints of. So it's a really unique, it's a real Taiwanese made invention. And I think it's a source of pride.
1: Wow, that sounds fascinating. And when you say there's you know, not a lot of wheat grown there, I'm, I'm also guessing you don't see a lot of cows. So the the beef itself was probably also imported.
3: Yeah, today. I mean, they import a lot of beef. I mean, they're pretty global, you know, society. So um, they, they've they grow some um, livestock, but just you know, looking at the size of Taiwan and how much of it is covered in jungle and forest, there's not a whole lot of room for grazing.
1: Right. That makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, and, and what about the vegetables? Do you see like a, a similar diversity of vegetables that are being grown there, being imported, uh, or does that tend to stay more local?
3: Oh, they tend to export those things because they grow some really, really great fruits and vegetables, and also tea. Tea is a specialty mm. in Taiwan, so they grow really distinctive, world-renowned teas. But, you know, the fruits and vegetables love the climate of Taiwan, and particular ones that need tons of sun, um, you know, like melons and so forth. They grow all kinds of squashes, and summer squashes, that is, and melons, um, and they're just... They're, they taste like a night and day difference too. When you taste a watermelon or honeydew in Taiwan compared to even like the best at peak ones around here, um, they eat a lot of it too.
1: I, I had a, a similar experience. Once you've had a mango in Singapore, you've just yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's not it's not like having a mango anywhere else. It's fully totally amplified, right? In flavor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that something about that tropical climate, uh, it makes such a difference. So there, are there a lot of vegetarian dishes? I, uh,
3: I haven't gotten a chance to read all the way through your cookbook, sure. so I don't know how many you've included. I mean, you included. think, I mean, the, Taiwan is pretty cool because it has preserved its ancient religions in a way that m- modern China sort of didn't as well, thanks to the communist revolution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's... A deeply ingrained sense of Taoism and Buddhism and a sense of yin and yang and balance and eating plenty of vegetables. And that's seen in, you know, family banquets or just the family dinners. Um, but I think that even though there are plenty of Buddhists who are very strict or monks who eat vegetarian, today's youngsters are, um, a little bit adventurous eaters and, uh, you know, today's, You know, Taiwanese, the average Taiwanese is a total foodie, so they're they're ready to eat everything rather than limit their diets to one. You know, vegetarian corner.
0: Well, and speaking of limiting, how was it that you selected or or limited the recipes in your book, and and what was the process of organizing them? I, I know when when you make a cookbook, when you write a cookbook, it's all in the organization and how you present the material.
3: Right. So, you know, I just wanted to, as I was traveling throughout Taiwan, I kept looking for for signs of interesting food that I might not be aware of yet. So I went to small little towns, farms, and so forth, and uh, tried to find those like really famous but little known dishes of Taiwan. Um, to whatever success I may have done, I can't wait to hear people chime in on the conversation and broaden our knowledge of Taiwanese food more. Um, I would really love to hear more of those. But, um, you know, I tried my best to gather as many as I could. And then once I had a good deal of recipes to the that I was thinking about, um, I threw a series of dinner parties where I cooked my way through a lot of the recipes to test out, you know, portions and so forth. And I had everybody give feedback and, and tell me what they loved and what they hated. And that was a lot of fun. So um, tell us also about the
1: photography in the book, because uh, there are photographs of Taiwan and also some
3: gorgeous photographs of the food. Oh, thank you. Um, So, you know, I had um, once, you know, I had um, a preference for photographers. I wanted to work with an old buddy of mine from college who happens to be Taiwanese-American, too, just because... You know, I, I thought that would be so great. Um, he had never worked on a cookbook really before. So as soon as I got the clearance and I, I found out from my publisher that it was okay, I could have him shoot the cookbook, I knew it was going to look unlike most cookbooks that we see today. There was going to be a lot of sort of documentary-style photographs of people um, making things and doing things and just in their natural settings and um, it was going to have that that real real life feel rather than a lot of staged food so yeah we tried to strike a balance too and shoot a lot of you know elegantly plated food um, for the recipes but I think the majority of the photos if you flip through are are people and places we're going to take a quick break but don't go away
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Kathy Erway, who's the author of The Food of Taiwan. So, Kathy, tell us about your blog, The Art of Eating In. Um, So is this basically just a way to stop spending
3: money on eating out? Yeah, I mean, I started the blog way back in 2006, and um, from 2006 to 2008, I decided to not go to restaurants and see, see what would happen, see how long that would last, and see if it was possible to live... Um, and work, you know, nine to five in the city while making food for myself from scratch most of the time. Um, and I I think that, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot that I came out of the project thinking about that I wouldn't have thought about to begin with. Um, so I kept up the blog and, you know, I wrote a memoir about it called the art of eating in that really highlights some of those discoveries,
1: um, how did how did that memoir come about? Were you approached by an editor or did you decide that that was something you wanted to do as your next step?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I was approached pretty early on by an agent who liked the idea of my blog. But at the time, my blog wasn't like, I guess, very, it wasn't very cohesive or formula. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't much of anything at that time. I was just sort of posting dabblings here about food, a recipe here, there. So when the agent confronted me, I really didn't have an idea for a book yet, but a year later, I did. So I really worked on it for a while and um, decided that, you know, there was an arc to this story, and I wanted to explore it more and dig into the topics around, you know, urban agriculture and um, foraging and, you know, wasted food and all these other topics that were around the idea of not eating out.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about arcs and let's talk about the arc of your own personal mm-hmm. narrative. Uh you say you've written on your on your blog. You grew up in a multicultural household in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh uh how has this influenced what you cook? Uh but also what you eat and how you uh uh entertain dinner parties.
3: Oh, thanks. Um so I you know, I really feel like I owe a lot of my food studies to growing up um, with with parents who enjoyed cooking. Um, they they really took an interest in international foods. Of course, my mom is Chinese and my, my father is American so we were kind of, a, our, within our house, we were international as well. So, um, you know, I, I really owe the world to them for introducing me to foods very early on and getting me excited about cooking. And, um, you know, I I think that that laid the f- the foundation for my missing cooking um, as I was, you know, after I'd grown up and, you know, was living on my own and I felt like going to restaurants was the norm and cooking was kind of like social taboo almost. <laughs> or it wasn't seen as like the thing to do if you're a foodie or if you're interested in food. It was like, no, you follow these trends of restaurants, see where that hot chef is cooking next, and so forth. So, so that led me to to my first book and blog about rediscovering home cooking and seeing seeing how that would fly in an unlikely setting, I guess, for it. And, um, you know, from there, it just made me realize that there's, there's just so much story to tell about Taiwanese food. It doesn't even have to do with my family in particular. It's, yes, it's where my mom is from, but it's, there's a whole story out there on its own that is just waiting to be told. So, of course, I was inspired by by my family, but also by Taiwan. So when you're in Taiwan, what's
1: the food and cooking culture like there? And as you say, you know, again, big American cities, there's this whole eating out culture. In in Taiwan, is it more, uh, are there restaurants, are there people mostly cooking at home, are there big dinner parties, small gatherings? Wow, it's
3: such a dramatic... um, Highs and lows of both, I think. I mean, right now, night markets are all the rage, and uh, this is basically a street fair that happens every single night um, in so many na- neighborhoods throughout uh, the cities of Taiwan. So, a night market will have different food vendors all trying to outdo one another with like the coolest, most interesting, or tastiest dumplings or what have you that they're peddling. Um, and that's where That's where young people go to socialize and hang out, kind of like the mall Mm -hmm. um, that we have here. And then on the other hand, you have a deeply ingrained culture of like family banquets and um, sitting down at the table for for holidays, religious observances like New Year's and so forth. So there's a bit of both.
0: Well so let's talk about these these street snacks, these street foods. I mean you have a a chapter on appetizers and street mm-hmm. snacks. Uh tell us give us a description. What does the what do the booths look like? Are they cooked out on an open uh uh open flame? So give us a give us a little walking tour of this and what we might see.
3: Oh, okay. So it's very crowded. You walk into um a very busy night market, let's say it's Shida night market in Taipei. It's a very iconic one. Um, there's, there's lights, you know, fluorescent lights from some of the awnings or some of the stands that are serving, um, I don't know, crispy, crispy dumplings of some sort. Maybe it's a scallion pancake that is served up with sauce. Maybe it's a soup peddler scooping up, um, various different luwe braised foods that you can kind of choose. It's sort of like a hot pot. Um, that you can choose whichever items you'd like to plop into it um and then um you have clothing vendors selling the latest fashions, um electronics vendors um there's a little games like I, like I can't describe the names of some of these games, but it's sort of like you know mechanical arcade games sometimes are available for the younger kids to play in, and um yeah, it's a little bit like like a street fair or carnival um, that you might see maybe once a year in most places, except it happens every single night <laughs> in these places.
1: So it sounds like um, it, it could be its own temptation to eat out every night, to just go to the night market every night and see what's there today.
3: I think people do, but I think that people go there um, just as a way of hanging out, too, um, whether it's grabbing a few bites or just or grabbing several different bites for dinner um, it's definitely a destination to go for just socializing
1: so on the social cooking front the social eating front you co-founded the hapa kitchen supper club Uh, according to your website it creates local and seasonal food inspired by its members half asian heritage so where did that idea come from
3: well um me and a few other folks uh, Decided that, you know, we were just talking so much about cool fusions that we ate growing up that we didn't think of as cool, you know, like white bread with Chinese roast pork between, you know, (laughs) it's kind of like accidental Asian fusion Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we remembered from our youth. And we wanted to play up on this theme, but in a, a sort of smart um hopefully more refined way but still inventive and playful so we would come up with these dream menus and then one day we realized you know let's just do it let's like create a dinner party and then a series was formed from that and so we had a, you know pop-up dinners here and there um so we were a supper club and it was tons of fun well
0: give us a little sample menu of one sure. of these at one of these dinners
3: Okay, so one one of the themes was um, Paris of the East, which is what Shanghai was called um, back in the day, of like the 20s and so forth. Um, so we made a duck dinner, focusing on local local duck from Hudson Valley Duck Farm, and uh, we partnered with Sangli Farms, which is in Long Island, and they make organic uh, they grow <laughs> organic vegetables. Um, and uh, we created a dinner around this theme. Um, we had like duck that was uh, made with like an orange and butter sauce, similar to both like the Chinese American sweet and sour sort of duck sauce, quote mm-hmm. unquote, as well as duck a l'orange So it was a fun little play on both of them. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. Mm-hmm. So um,
1: since you were so influenced by your parents cooking, I have to ask, do they cook from your cookbook?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Gee, you know, I think my mom has never used any cookbooks, really, Mm -hmm. growing up. And I tend to also be a little bit more, um, I guess, spontaneous when it comes to grabbing ingredients. I like to read cookbooks for inspiration. But then when it comes down to it, I'll just kind of make a variation of a recipe. So I think that um, at least my mom is the same way. And I believe my dad is a little bit more studious and follows a recipe to the tea, and he has made some of my recipes both on my blog and from my first book. So I'll be excited to see if he, if he, uh, takes on some, some of my new books recipes.
0: So can you, uh, for those of us who may want to plan a, uh, Taiwanese dinner party for friends, Mm. say, uh, a group of four or six, uh, what what would you recommend from your cookbook?
3: Mm. Okay. So, uh, you know, Hopefully, it'll be helpful that the cookbook is organized by course type. Yes, right. So, I would say pick a couple of the appetizers or snacks. Um, for example, uh, maybe a dumpling um, or a pair, a duo of dumplings. But the crispy gaudier, the Taiwanese brand of pot stickers, is pretty hard to beat. Especially if, I mean, they're just such a crowd pleaser. Great. And then I would move on and choose a couple of the vegetable courses, any two, any distant, you know, two different ones that you like. And then, um, you know, one chicken course, say like the three cup chicken, one meat course, say maybe like a red braised, uh, pork belly or something kind of richer. And then to balance maybe a more clean tasting, uh, fish, or seafood dish, perhaps the pan-fried, seared, very simple fish with uh, scallions and ginger would be a great touch. Wow,
1: I'm getting hungry.
2: <laughs>
1: wonderful. So, um, what's what's your next project now that this is out in the world?
3: Great question. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what the next direction is. And I've, you know, I, I really enjoy the writing and the history part, um, as you mentioned, which seems to take up most of the narrative of the book, aside from the recipe. So, you know, I'm, I'm leaning towards that direction with with ideas. I'm not quite sure where they're going just yet.
1: And, and do you have any sense of this sparking more interest in the food of Taiwan? You mentioned that there was a real lack of Cookbooks mm-hmm. in English. Um, is there uh, maybe some hope that we could get more cookbooks about Taiwanese yeah. food, or maybe some translations?
3: I mean, that is ultimately the my goal with this cookbook is to spark an awareness, but also a study of and a conversation about Taiwanese food. And I I understand, like you know, taking on this large authoritative sounding cookbook where it's supposed to be a comprehensive you know tome on the whole cuisine it might seem a little bit uh, presumptuous but that's totally not what I'm hoping to do I, I just hope that this will only be the beginning you know we're only just scratching the tip of the iceberg here with this book and we'll see many more um, dialogues about about Taiwanese food to come
0: so each culture has its own form of comfort food. What might be the ultimate comfort food for Taiwanese?
3: Oh, gosh, I think it might be a sweet potato congee that's as simple and basic as it sounds. It's chunks of sweet potatoes and uh, cooked into a porridge of rice. <laughs> and wow. um, it is such a comfort food because you'll see it even on like fancy restaurant menus. But at you know, in its heyday, it was really just a way to keep farmers, um, nourished for a long day in the field. And sweet potatoes are just, just a lot more nutritious than just plain old rice. And when, when meat is scarce, um, you know, this was a filling bowl. So, I mean, it has, it has that comfort, um, you know, nostalgia attached to it. And, um, when you think about the harder times that our forebears had, it's just, it gives you that ultimate comfort. We've been talking with Kathy
1: Erway, and you can find her book, The Food of Taiwan, in stores right now.
0: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another scintillating author interview.
0: In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com PWRadio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.